This episode is brought to you with support from Lyft. Lyft is continuing its leadership in creating a cleaner, healthier, and more equitable future with a bold commitment to reach 100% electric vehicles used on the Lyft platform by 2030. The shift to EVs will create opportunities for drivers to lower costs and keep more of their earnings. Transportation currently accounts for the largest portion of greenhouse gas emissions in the U.S., and so Lyft is committed to leading the way to decarbonize its platform through vehicle electrification. Learn more at liftimpact.com electric. It's not hard to see that the writing is on the wall that, you know, investors across the board are not making any distinction. It's not just about coal anymore. They see all fossil fuels as problematic. And I don't think that it will take very long before we see uh, oil and gas receiving the same treatment that coal has uh, gotten from investors and the financial community. Fossil fuel divestment ain't what it used to be. In a good way, if you ask advocates. We dig into the details with Justin Gray of the Sunrise Project in this episode, which marks episode two in our special series called Ditched, Fossil Fuels, Money Flows, and the Greening of Finance. This is the political climate podcast on energy and environmental issues in America and around the world, presented by the USC Schwarzenegger Institute. And I'm your host, Julia Piper, a contributing editor with Green Tech Media and a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. We launched the Ditched miniseries to shed light on the divestment movement and the growing trend of moving money out of fossil fuels and increasingly into more sustainable investments. In episode one, Ellen Dorsey, executive director of the Wallace Global Fund, outlined the origins of the divest-invest movement, starting from student protests at universities, followed by divestment commitments from high-powered philanthropies and family offices, and snowballing from there. Ellen gave a great primer on Divest Invest, so if you haven't listened to that episode yet, I hope you'll go back and check it out. In this episode, we get further into the weeds with another expert, Justin Guay, Director for Global Climate Strategy at the Sunrise Project, an organization working to scale social movements to drive the transition from fossil fuels to renewable energy as fast as possible. Prior to joining Sunrise, Justin managed grant-making and strategy development for global coal campaigns at the Climate Works Foundation and Packard Foundation. At the Packard Foundation, he oversaw a $40 million grant-making portfolio across all climate and energy priorities in India, China, the U.S., the EU, and Southeast Asia. He's also run the Sierra Club's International Coal Campaign as the Associate Director for the International Climate Program. The program focused on global efforts to transition energy systems beyond coal to clean energy, with a special focus on international finance. We cover a lot in this conversation. We discuss how cutting off the flow of capital into fossil fuels has taken on a variety of different forms. Justin addresses the tricky question of whether making fossil fuels harder to finance will actually curb demand. And we talk about what a future without fossil fuels would look like and how it would affect everything from individual workers to geopolitical relations. So let's turn now to our conversation. And don't forget to hit subscribe to Political Climate wherever you get podcasts so that you can catch all ditched episodes airing Mondays over the next several weeks. So, Justin, people may have seen headlines like BlackRock's Larry Fink issues this letter saying that they are factoring in climate change in their investments and they're moving out of the most polluting fossil fuels. They may have just seen this week that Deutsche Bank is no longer going to finance drilling in the Arctic under pressure from activists. But there's a lot of other stuff out there, too, like retirement funds, insurers getting involved in the divestment movement, campuses. Can you start this conversation by just breaking down some of the key buckets and key players we're talking about when we talk about divestment? How would you characterize that? Because it seems like there's a lot going on. Yes, absolutely, Julia. There is a lot going on, and it's pretty hard to track, to be honest. Um, I guess one simplistic way to think about this, especially if you're used to divestment um, and you've followed those trends over the years, is to think about think about it in stocks and flows. So divestment uh, was really focused on the stock of accumulated capital and trying to make a what at least began as a symbolic gesture 
to deny social license to the fossil fuel industry by forcing people or asking people to get rid of their stocks in their retirement funds for pension funds to say, we're not going to own this anymore because, you know, we have decided it's uh, damaging the planet. Uh, but what we, you know, fast forward several years, um, and what you have is really a situation that's not your grandpa's divestment anymore. Um, it's really a much more sophisticated and diverse set of actions and actors that is systematically denying capital and access to capital markets to the fossil fuel industry across the board. And so that's much more focused on the flow of finance side. And that's where it starts to become particularly problematic and have a real impact on the operations of the coal, oil, and gas industries. And so, you know, if stocks are more like, you know, if the stock of capital is more your pension funds, um, your average retirement fund, the flow is more the set of institutions that enable uh, the expansion of, of the industry. So that's banks writing loans to new projects. It is insurers providing insurance so that you can get a loan to a, for a project. It's multilateral development banks like the World Bank or export credit agencies like the U.S. Export-Import Bank helping to de-risk those loans. There's a whole set of institutions that help enable a credit cycle that helps fuel the expansion of the fossil fuel industry. And I think what began as, you know, in many ways, a symbolic action to take a stand against fossil fuels has morphed into this sophisticated set of strategies that, as one industry analyst put it, is like an anaconda slowly strangling its prey and uh, really uh, denying the fossil fuel industry access to the capital it so desperately needs. Interesting. Yeah. Well, that helps set it up, I, I think. What what would you say is the leading edge of the movement now? I think of it starting with the campuses, with universities, and you explained how it's evolved. What would you say is the, the, the front edge of where activists are pushing right now? Well, I am probably a bit self-interested in this answer, but I think some of the most sophisticated campaigns are now focused on um, actors that are linchpins to the credit cycle. And so one of the most important ones that we ourselves at the Sunrise Project are interested in are insurers. So in a very simplistic way, you can't get finance for a project if you don't have insurance for uh, that project. And so, you know, basically no insurance, no finance, no project is the um, way to think about it. Uh, and around the world, we're starting to see because of campaigns targeting global insurance companies, insurers are really fleeing the coal sector in particular uh, and saying that they're simply unwilling to provide underwriting and insurance for the expansion of that sector. And it's starting to have a really very material impact. You're seeing premiums rise. You're seeing um, global companies say that they're having a really tough time finding insurance for new projects, let alone for um, their company's operations. Uh, so I think those are the kinds of campaigns that um, look and feel a lot different from a traditional divestment campaign that are focused on really systematically taking apart that credit cycle and uh, denying fossil fuel companies the ability uh, to tap global capital markets and expand their operations. Yeah, I recall there being a movement around that here in California where I'm based uh, specifically, I believe. Dave Jones, the last insurance commissioner, really put climate on the agenda for the insurance industry. And I believe the current commissioner, Ricardo Lara, is continuing that trend, although I'm not sure to what extent. Just before we move on, do you have any thoughts on the California situation? Yeah, I mean, I would say that we're we're a pretty big fan of Dave Jones. He was really a trendsetter in a lot of ways. Um, and what the state of California did was important in that they they called for voluntary divestment from coal, um, which was, you know, many years ago at this point, and that was uh, really quite a uh, an important thing for the state to do. But as I said, you know, we're we're really focused now on the flow of money, and so I think the next step, the next logical step, is for regulators to stop forcing or to start forcing insurers to halt the provision of insurance. And I think that's. One place we've been pretty disappointed, frankly, with Ricardo Lara um, and his office. You know, we had thought he would build on um, the foundations that Dave Jones laid and hopefully start to expand uh, what he was expecting of insurance companies. And, you know, unfortunately, he hasn't really come through uh, in the way we had hoped. Um, but, you know, despite that lack of regulatory action, I think the thing that's been most striking 
um, for both insurance and, frankly, all of the types of institutions we talked about up front, is that you know voluntary policies are uh, growing at a pretty rapid clip. Um, so IEFA and Tim Buckley track this globally, and what they have found is that over 136 globally significant financial institutions, insurers, banks, multilateral development banks, have announced coal exclusion policies since 2013. And this year, despite a pandemic, despite a recession, investors have, and, and these financial institutions have announced uh, new coal exclusion policies at a rate of nearly twice a week. So, um, you know, despite the lack of regulatory action, despite uh, the lack of progress in DC, what we're seeing is a really powerful message emerging from the financial sector, which is that, you know, coal industry in particular is just too toxic to touch. Um, and I think the interesting thing we maybe talk about later is that that's expanding quite quickly to include oil and gas now as well. How are these arguments being made exactly? Is it is it on this moral basis that, hey, you insurance company or investor need to stop doing this because, frankly, it's just going to kill the planet. It's going to harm future generations. And is, is that what's what's leading the discussion, really getting this done? Or has it evolved into a purely financial discussion at this point? And, and where do those two things intersect, the moral and the financial? Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, I think it's, to be honest, both. You know, when it comes to coal, I think we're all quite familiar with the raging dumpster fire that are that is the economics of the coal industry these days. So I don't think it's a very difficult decision for a financial institution to make to say, you know, it doesn't make sense to do business with this industry. So that is clearly a part of the secular trend we're starting to see in the finance industry around these policies and around the lack of capital. Um, but I think the thing that is often underrated is that financial institutions are staffed by people too, <laughs> people who care about what's happening to the planet. They compete in the marketplace for, you know, the best and the brightest, um, and they want people to want to work uh, in their institutions. And so none of these banks, none of these insurers want to be known as a global villain. None of them want staff to feel like they can't go home and face their kids at night. Uh, and so I think you you really can't underestimate the impact that um, reputational risk uh, and moral arguments do have. Because, you know, I think over and again, what we see, one of the biggest factors driving change in uh, corporate America it's actually staff level pressure uh, and CEOs and C-suite executives really are not going to ignore that pressure because, you know, they want to get the most out of their employees and they want to be able to attract the best and the brightest. And I think, frankly, it was a big part of what drove BlackRock to announce their policy earlier this year. I'm curious just to take a moment on BlackRock because that was such a big announcement, at least, you know, from a media perspective. Do you take that as a legitimate commitment to climate action? I know that others view it as kind of a greenwashing uh, scheme. So what's your read on what the BlackRock announcement meant? And that, again, was a commitment from from this, from this the top to really reorganize their portfolio. But from my understanding, some of the details were, were sparse. Yeah, absolutely, Julia. So, I mean, I guess there's, there's two ways to think about this. And we'll start with the good and then we'll move to the bad. Uh, so on one hand, uh, there is obviously something incredibly powerful about the world's largest investor, the largest asset manager in the world, with a $7 trillion balance sheet saying, we are going to put climate change uh, and climate risk at the center of all investment strategy. Um, that was really a clarion call. I mean, honestly, heard around the world. We continue to see the ripples of that announcement in our day-to-day -day work. And so I don't think you can really underestimate the power of um, Larry Fink going out and not only making that policy, but really personally owning that. You know, it wasn't just an announcement that uh, made its way through a single news cycle and then they moved on. I mean, this is something that we know from... Um, People within BlackRock and people around BlackRock, it's something that the institution does take seriously and I think leadership takes quite seriously. So I think on one hand, that's a powerful thing. Um, so that's the good. I think on the other hand, uh, the devil is in the details and frankly, the details are lacking. Um, so just a couple of important uh, facts for you. So the thing that they really did that was quite material was announce what at that point was the largest coal divestment to date, given the fact that uh, it covered their actively managed portfolio, which is about 
It was about $1.3 trillion at the time, largest coal divestment ever announced. The problem is that when Ergovald, which is a leading uh, NGO think tank in Germany, which maintains something called the Coal Exit List, uh, which is a catalog of all companies in the coal industry, which is meant to aid divestment decisions so that investors know they are truly getting out of the coal industry. When they compared uh, the thresholds and the details of the BlackRock coal exit policy, they found that it really only applied to 20% of the global coal industry. So, you know, it was a very big announcement. They got a lot of applause, but the reality is they're still the world's largest coal investor. So I don't think that they have reduced their exposure to the industry. And I don't think that they are done having to, you know, really clean up their portfolio and ratchet down those um, thresholds. So that's one, I think, glaring gap. I think the other really important glaring gap is around their engagement with the companies that they continue to own. Because not all companies are going to be dinosaurs and die off. You know, many companies are diversified and they can and will adapt to the new low carbon economy we need to build. Um, but they're only going to do so if their investors flex their muscle and push these companies to change. And so BlackRock promised to do just that in their big policy announcement. The problem is we just finished shareholder season and they failed to vote for climate related resolutions in 80% of the companies that they themselves identified as needing to do more on climate. So on one hand, they have still only divested roughly 20% of the global coal industry. And then on the other hand, they haven't voted for 80% of the companies that they know need to do more on climate. And then I think the last and probably most problematic thing that they did this last shareholder season is they failed to vote against notorious climate denier Lee Raymond, who is the or was the lead independent director on the board of Chase, which is the largest financier of fossil fuels. And it was this big symbolic vote that the climate community was really focused on. Many investors did vote against him because, you know, he's a part of the problem and BlackRock failed to. So I think, you know, there's a very big gap between, you know, all of the applause and all of the words and what they're actually doing. And I think there's a lot of people who will be paying close attention to make sure we close that gap going forward. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting to get the follow up after the news drops. You know, we see that splashed across headlines and then it's like, well, how did that actually play out? What have they done since then? Absolutely. I want to turn to the oil and gas piece. You touched on that and alluded to that being sort of a new frontier of divestment. Coal, it kind of seems like well, I guess the story for coal is not over. I was in India earlier this year. I know you spent a lot of time in India. Uh, coal is still used commonly there. Mind you, it is on the way out. I mean, China as well, coal is an issue. But it does really feel like oil and gas is the next uh, real battleground. So how are you seeing this fight being brought to that sector? And will they have learned anything from the coal fight? If I'm an oil and gas company, I'm probably thinking... I mean, I know the tools and the in the in the policy and advocacy toolkit. Now, I'm going to make sure that I'm not as vulnerable, perhaps. But I don't know. What, how would you characterize this? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, so, you know, going back to that uh, secular trend that we're seeing in the investment sector, which is just generalized capital flight away from the coal industry. Um, you know, as you said, I think that that's pretty obvious. I mean, it's it's a bit insane that we need to push investors to stay away from one of the most financially and environmentally toxic industries on earth, but we do. Um, and so that feels to a lot of people, I think, is obvious. Um, oil and gas, I think the conversation today, you know, it, it still feels like people have not fully made up their mind. Um, there's you know, plenty of people who are arguing that oil companies can announce a 2050 net zero goal and that they can transition and they can be part of the solution. Uh, and it, it does remind me a bit of the coal fight. You know, if we rewind 10 years ago to Waxman Markey and, and before, there was a raging debate over the role of CCS and whether or not coal companies needed to be at the table. Uh, and it's funny because if you fast forward to today, I don't think anybody would with a straight face suggest that coal companies are a part of the solution to climate change. I mean, they have been systematically denied social license and they are universally repudiated. Oil and gas, you know, I think they're in that we're in the process of that happening to that industry as well. And I think the thing that is important to learn from the coal fight is that, you know, where, where we started in the coal fight um, or when we started with the coal fight, the economics were not necessarily yet on our side. And so a, a lot of that work was focused on reputational risk, moral risk, and just the, the sheer facts around coal driving climate change. It accelerated dramatically when the economics shifted 
And I think we're at that tipping point with the oil and gas industry. And I think the clear thing that our side needs to get um, 100% universally, universal owner, or universal buy-in around is whether or not the oil and gas industry is a good guy or a bad guy. And I think we would argue that they are bad guys. There are examples of uh, oil and gas companies that have transitioned, Orsted and others, but they are the exception, not the rule. Um, and I don't think anybody would expect Blockbuster to disrupt itself and become Netflix. And yet this seems to be the universal uh, story around what oil and gas companies can do in the new uh, new economy. And so um, I think that's one thing that I have I've noticed that is an interesting parallel or an interesting lesson from the coal fight. But back to the finance side, I think what we've seen is that there's 136 global financial institutions with a coal exclusion policy. Most of them have gone back and tightened those policies down over time. So they've gotten better and better and better and excluded more and more and more coal. What they're starting to do now is expand those policies to include oil and gas. And so, uh, again, IEFA is starting to track oil and gas exit policies as well. And we're seeing that many of the same companies, insurers, banks, and others are now expanding those policies to include at least project level restrictions on particularly risky projects like oil and gas drilling in the Arctic. And so just if you look back over time at how those restrictions have gotten better and more expansive um, and have included more and more financial institutions, it's not hard to see that the writing is on the wall that, you know, investors across the board are not making any distinction. It's not just about coal anymore. They see all fossil fuels as problematic. And I don't think that it will take very long before we see uh, oil and gas receiving the same treatment that coal has uh, gotten from investors and the financial community. Um, and I guess the last thing I'll say is um, I think the most powerful stat that I have seen in terms of the end outcome of the divestment movement and the oil and, and the fossil fuel restrictions that we're seeing announced all around the world is the cost of capital. And so the University of Oxford, um, their oil and gas team, not the crunchy clean energy guys, um, have been conducting surveys with U.S. and European institutional investors, basically asking them, what's the cost of capital? How much do you charge for a particular energy project? And the results were pretty powerful. They said that um, coal faces as much as four times as much, uh, four times as expensive cost of capital or hurdle rate compared to clean energy. Um, oil and gas is not there yet, but I think it's not going to be long before their cost of capital skyrockets and their access to capital markets diminishes. I want to go back to something you said and, and push on it a little bit, the uh, the notion of good guys and bad guys. And I'm just going to throw this out there and, and, and see how you grapple with it. But I would imagine, you know, to, to say Western Canadians, I'm Canadian, you know, so so when I go back home, people are like, damn, those foreign funded environmentalists who come in from the U.S. and block our pipelines. And boom, we have this unemployment issue across us, the across the province of Alberta and the you know, national economy is suffering. And to those people, it really feels like the bad guys are the advocates, the, the activists who are not recognizing that there's an economy and lives and livelihoods that are based on a resource that they would say they are trying to develop in the most the most environmentally friendly way. You know, develop it in Canada, not Venezuela, you know, things like that we hear we hear talked about. So when we think about the oil and gas sector, are there any good guys on that front? How would you delineate between, say, a corporation and then the workers and the communities that rely on that corporation? Is it purely black and white? Or how do you think about the gray? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think something that is important to remember is that I don't think I know of a single climate ad advocate or environmental activist who gets up every morning saying, I really can't wait to um, disappear some jobs. <laughs> I don't think that's anybody's goal. And I think if you know people were paying attention to um, not just the messaging coming out of the climate community, but the purposeful partnerships, the focus on just transition, you know, the real uh, attention that's being paid to what we do with communities that get left behind, um, they would realize that's not the goal of any climate advocate. I think the thing that I would, that I think is important to remember is that, you know, environmentalists are often used as a punching bag for um, the fossil fuel industry and other extractive industries. Um, and they're used as a distraction for problems that exist 
outside of any kind of environmental regulations or any kind of uh, efforts to shift these industries into a different place. And so if you look at the oil and gas industry, there have been 200 oil and gas bankruptcies um, before the pandemic hit. There's been another 100 <laughs> that are uh, looming over the next uh, several months and have already started. And all of that is driven by the fundamental economics uh, that the industry faces. And so, you know, I think what happens is that um, the industry tries to use climate regulations, environmental regulations as a distraction for some of the fundamental flaws in their business model. So I think that's a, an important thing for everybody to remember. I think the other thing to keep in mind, too, especially as we're in the middle of um you know, a, a pandemic-driven recession, and we have bailouts coming from governments around the world, is that those bailouts are not targeted towards uh, communities. They're not targeted towards workers. They're targeted towards executives and shareholders. And so, you know, the notion that these industries have workers' at, um, workers' best interest at heart, that that's what they are doing every day they wake up and go to work, is you know, laughable on the face. We have so many examples, even just during the last few months of oil and gas bankruptcies that have occurred, um, you know, only days after executives have taken golden parachutes, paid themselves, you know, millions of dollars of bonuses. That has nothing to do with climate ad advocates, has nothing to do with climate change. You know, this is something that I think is endemic to um, not just the oil and gas industry, frankly, um, but it's a it's a problem that uh, I think we need to separate out from, you know, the broader challenge we face around transitioning to a low carbon economy. Do you think there's an argument to be made that the reason that these these firms were suffering ahead of the pandemic was because of the environmental activism, the financial pressure we were talking about at the start? Well, we could only hope that we would be that successful. <laughs> um, I, I think, to be honest, though, uh, all jokes aside, you know, let's take the United States, we've had nearly four years of Trump administration, all they have done is systematically dismantle environmental regulations. So if the industry is going to look at environmentalists and climate advocates and say, um, you guys are our punching bag, you're the reason for all of our woes, I mean, it's laughable on the face. Uh, you know, if you can't survive and thrive in the Trump administration, I think it means that your business model and the uh, way you're doing business isn't fit um, for survival in the 21st century. So, you know, I think that's just unfortunately the reality. And I think that reality is going to get worse and worse and worse as clean energy alternatives become more competitive. Um, governments finally start to wake up and there's an inevitable policy response. You know, the, this transition is going to happen. I think the challenge we face is that it's not happening fast enough. But to your point about uh, are we having an impact, I mean, I think it's quite clear that climate advocates are having an impact. Um, we don't want to see certain types of industries continue. Uh, and that's just a part of the unfortunate reality about the transition we face. And I think the difference with us compared to many of these industry executives is that we're trying to be honest about um, what's going to happen to many of these workers. We want to create you know, pots of just transition money. We want to support communities in transition but frankly, we're fought tooth and nail at every turn by industry executives who, you know, frankly, are um, not concerned with the long term welfare of um, many of the people in these industries. Do you spend any time trying to get the people in these industries, as you just put it, uh, not just the corporations or higher ups or any buy in at that level, but truly the workers and the people in the communities? Do you spend time trying to get them on board with the work that you're doing or at least inform them? Uh, as to what you're doing, or is that kind of a fool's errand? And you just got to keep focusing on the task at hand and let the information come out. And that's kind of like the media's job or someone else to sort of disseminate the information. Or do you actively reach out and try to like let these communities know what you're up to? Yeah, well, you know, I started my career at the Sierra Club. Um, and some of the closest partnerships I've ever had have been with people who live in um what they would call sacrifice zones, people who lived very close to coal plants or lived in active coal mining areas. And, you know, we had some of the best partnerships, at least I've ever experienced in my professional life with these people because, you know, they could see um, the writing on the wall. They knew how the industry was operating and they didn't want that to be their future. Um, so I think, you know, I, I personally experienced and been a part of a lot of campaigns where direct outreach to local communities was a key feature, um, not a bug. And so I, I think that's true uh, in a lot of the best work I've seen. Um, when it comes to the work on financial institutions, I think, you know, the strategic approach here is that um, 
climate advocates are trying to drive a wedge between the enablers of the fossil fuel economy and the fossil fuel economy itself. And so financial institutions can have a future without fossil fuels. It's not a huge part of their loan book. It's not a huge part of their profitability. It's, it's not a problem for them to not do business with this industry. And for that reason, we do do a lot of engagement with um, staff. As I said up front, I think staff are one of the biggest drivers for change in financial institutions who decide, you know, it's just not worth doing business with this industry. So um, I do think that human element and really recruiting people to our side is incredibly important and has proven over and again, you know, that people, um, people don't want to see us destroy the world uh, to have a good life. I think, you know, most people given the choice, uh, that's not the choice they're going to choose. So say the financial institutions really do pull back from fossil fuels in a more concerted and just major way. What does that do to demand? How does that affect that side of the equation? Uh, presumably, these companies will have a harder time operating, the fossil fuel companies. Uh, will they just shut down? And if they do, what happens to how we fuel our cars, say? And I know the simple answer is like, look, we're going to deploy EVs. But there's a lot of things that would have to perfectly align for another industry, that being the automotive industry, to come in with a full suite of EVs that are affordable and ready for people to uptake with charging infrastructure, etc. So a lot of things have to align. So again, my question is, you go after the financing side of things, how does that affect the demand for fossil fuels? Will that just, you think, organically flow from there? Or is there a whole other side of this that we haven't touched on yet? It's a good question. I mean, I live in a red state. I live in Utah, uh, and trying to find an EV is like pulling teeth. <laughs> so it's a that's a good uh, a good point that hits home for me. Um, I actually will use an example uh, from the power sector side, just because it's one I'm more familiar with. But it, I think it does answer your question about kind of the supply demand issue. So um, you know, something I think most people don't realize, or most people think, is that money is fungible. If you deny access to capital here, it just pops up over there. Um, there's really no point in trying to deny access to finance because um, there's plenty of it around the world and somebody, some unscrupulous character will be willing to step in and finance anything um, that a you know, more responsible lender won't. But if you look at, for instance, global coal expansion, uh, nothing could be further from the truth. So we're really at a point where we're looking at the last gasp of coal expansion. It's largely in Southeast Asia. And the reason it's happening is because primarily because three Asian countries, China, Japan, and South Korea, are providing public funding to de-risk and subsidize that last wave of coal expansion. If you took away that public money that is largely coming from their export credit agencies, but also their banks, these coal projects wouldn't make sense. Um, there are not private sector lenders who would be willing to lend for these new coal plants in the places where they're trying to be built because there is political risk, there is uh, local economic risk, there is currency risk, you know, these risks abound. And the only reason this works is because there are non-monetary, non-economic drivers for these coal plants to be built, largely jobs in Japan, China, and uh, South Korea, or industries that, you know, frankly, are facing overcapacity in their home markets because nobody wants to build coal plants any there anymore. So they need to find new places they can build coal plants and continue to do business. So I think where the supply and demand uh, capital, at least, meet is um, quite clear on the coal side. If we didn't see money coming from those three Asian countries, we by and large would not see that last wave of coal plants being built. Um, and I think that that's pretty powerful. It's why the finance work, I think, is so important. It's why I have spent a bunch of time working on this issue over the years. When it comes to the transition you mentioned, though, around EV charging and what do I do when I can't get in my truck in the morning? I think that's where, you know, that shift from, you know, kind of not, I don't want to say basic divestment because divestment pressure has been so fundamental to everything we've done, but that kind of, you know, increased sophistication of advocates focused on finance, I think that's where that comes into play. And, you know, going back to the role of BlackRock and the role of asset owners and the role of people who invest in these companies, we need investors flexing their muscles and saying, you know, it's no longer okay to be building you know, internal combustion engine cars, you need to quickly and rapidly transition to EVs, and you need to be leaning on governments to put in place 
supportive regulations so that we have a charging network and we have the ability to drive these cars wherever we want and buy them wherever we want. And so I think that's where the role of finance uh, becomes more nuanced and uh, more powerful than simply divestment and denying access to capital. Because, you know, the role and power of financial institutions, the financial lobby is quite clear. And if these institutions decide that, you know, the fate of the planet can be in their hands and that they do not necessarily need to rely on fossil fuels for their future growth or their income or their profitability, they can really be a powerful force for good. They can really, you know, flex on the companies we need to transition uh, so that we can have, you know, a more orderly and just transition than we otherwise will have, which, you know, otherwise in the path we're going, it's going to be very shumptering, you know, it's going to be very waves of destruction, creative destruction and people losing jobs and companies going out of business because we're not trying to purposefully plot a path uh, to a low carbon economy. Yeah. That's where I feel like I spend a lot of time and thought is in this nuance of, okay, I get the idea of divest away from these polluting resources that we know are hurting people and communities. That's happening. But then to have the invest part, the divest invest happen simultaneously involves a lot of players, a lot more detailed conversations. People are motivated by different things. Like a solar company's got a whole set of needs and supply chains and financing conversations and politics. They're not necessarily talking to the environmental advocates um, somewhere else in the world about how to be part of a macro transition. It's interesting to think about how all these pieces fit together and then how that kind of translates back to the masses and, and how this energy transition ultimately works if it's going to. On that side of it, I guess I want to throw a random question at you. When you think about the future, you know, think of like the Middle East, a place where the U.S. has all kinds of ties. It's fought for years for access to fossil fuel resources. Do you see that just going away? Are we going to live in a world by, say, 2050, where like the total map has shifted in terms of, you know, energy and who we work with on it? Like, is that a world that you see in your in your future? And what comes with all of that? I heard the other day that Singapore refines a lot more oil than maybe people realize. So what happens to Singapore's economy if that goes away? Do you contemplate those things looking a little bit further to the future? <laughs> a bit of a curveball. Total curveball. Um, no, I think I think you're right, though, that um, it, so I think generally most of us are not truly uh, plotting or planning for just how different the future will look than the past. You're not? No one has and this I figured think... out? Justin. <laughs> <laughs> I know, right? I've got, I, I'm on it. Yeah, working on work it. harder. <laughs> I do think that's part of the invisible chains, though, that you know, limit the frontiers of what we think is possible. Nobody looks back and says, geez, what happened to the whaling industry? Geez, what happened to uh, Blu-ray? Geez, what happened to Blockbuster? I mean, I think that is the reality of living in a capitalistic society that, you know, companies come and companies go. Um, and we have decided, for better or worse, that, you know, what we want is that creative destruction. Now, I, for one, don't think that's what we want um, for the low carbon transition. I think we do want a greater role for the state. I think we do want to plot and plan so that we don't leave entire communities behind who frankly have nothing beyond digging up and burning coal because there is no other local economy for them. Um, so, you know, I think uh, what you're, I don't know what will happen with our relationship with the Middle East, but all I would say is that I think what we're lurching towards is a lot of disruption and destruction that is unnecessary. If we could get ourselves to overcome the entrenched incumbents that are basically hijacking and holding the conversation hostage, because, you know, what they're doing is essentially lying to people and saying that you can have it the way it's always been. Nothing will ever change. Don't worry. We got this taken care of. And I think we all can see with our own eyes that that emperor is not wearing any clothes but we somehow seem unable to have the hard conversations that we need to have. So, you know, I, I just think that, um, I, I think that it, it's going to be tough. And I, I, you know, just to go back and beat my dead horse of net zero 2050 skepticism, you know, I, I think that that is why I'm so skeptical of oil companies transitioning to become clean energy providers, because if you look at all the incentives and how they're arrayed for, companies and C-suite executives, they are all so short-term, uh, it's really hard to believe that they're going to make the investments necessary absent compelling 
regulatory environments and you know political pressure that are required to truly transition into a fundamentally different company that is you know three decades away. And so you, if you look at you know the average time on a corporate board, it's seven years and trended down. If you look at the average tenor for a CEO of a public health company, it's seven years and trending down. Um, so the notion that these companies are going to stay the course over three more decades when, you know, somebody announced uh, in the heat of a particular political moment that we're going to transition to become a low carbon energy provider. It's, you know, I want that to be true. I'm just really, really skeptical. Um, so, you know, I, th I think what you're alluding to is uh, something that we really, truly aren't grappling with, which is that it's not just the disruption that climate change is causing, it's the disruption of the transition and it's going to happen one way or the other. And right now, the way it's happening is going to be really, really painful. Yeah, thanks for tackling that. And I think you actually put it better than I did. It's the disruption, the transition, which will happen anyway. It's not to say that it won't or it shouldn't, but what will it look like? And are we playing that game of 3D chess where we're thinking about the other implications that will come from the work that's happening today? And it's hard when there's so many immediate and urgent things to work on to then think about what could this future scenario be? But there's also lots of smart people in the world, and I'm sure we'll get there. But I do think about it, especially on a geopolitical level, because the US is so navel-gazy sometimes. But I'm like, what does this what does this mean in terms of the balance of powers and who makes what, where, when, peace relations, uh, you know, opportunities for communities to come out of poverty? All of that is very tied to energy and, and the things that we're talking about today. So it is a, a, it is a curveball for you, but I'm, I'm glad you were able to dig in there. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, it's funny you say 3D chess. I, I'm not sure our current president could play one dimensional chess. I'm not even sure you could open the box. So yeah, I don't think we're pretty far from that outcome. Yeah, so you're saying you're feeling confident. Um, well, <laughs> let's, let's end by talking about the US. So, you know, we're heading into this election season. And obviously, we're in the middle of this very uh, robust discussion about a, a stimulus package. The latest round seems to be again, targeted at workers and companies and things like that. But the concept of this green stimulus has come up a lot, I think, mostly in thought leadership forums, not yet in a real material legislative way. It's a very political conversation. Meanwhile, the fossil fuel industry has received, you know, billions of dollars in government support. And you wrote about this recently in Foreign Affairs. So let's just end by talking about what the path forward is in the near term, little more real world, bring it back home, of how you see the U.S. government engaging in stimulus. What needs to happen here with respect to clean energy versus fossil fuels? Or how would you see this kind of government support break down if you had the power to craft a bill? That is a great, great question and one that um, takes up a bunch, an inordinate amount of my mental space these days. So I guess the way I would frame this is that I think we really have three choices. Uh, we can bail out the fossil fuel industry, uh, which is essentially what we're doing right now. Um, we can allow for a shakeout, which would be to allow capitalism to run its course and let weak and vulnerable companies go bankrupt which will cause a trail of wreckage and, you know, lost jobs and all of the things we don't want to happen. Or we can uh, get a bit innovative uh, and swallow our pride and, and see a wave of buyouts and help forcibly retire these assets and take care of communities in the process. So essentially bailouts, shakeouts or buyouts um, is what we're faced with, whether we like it or not. And that's in part because long before the pandemic arrived, the fossil fuel industry was deeply, deeply sick. Um, we've talked about the deteriorating economics of the coal industry. That's also true in the oil and gas industry. You know, all of those problems were inherent uh, in the fossil fuel industry long before the pandemic. The pandemic just really revealed that fundamental economic weakness. The problem is that uh, as a result of the pandemic and the uh, recession that it caused, we've seen, you know, uh, regulators around the world really leap into action in a bunch of different ways, primarily to support, you know, the economy writ large, but it's been pretty indiscriminate. And that means they're also propping up many of these zombie fossil fuel companies that otherwise, by all rights, should go bankrupt. Um, and I think one of the most telling uh, examples of that has been in the United States, the Federal Reserve. Um, so they, you know, for the first time ever, decided to start buying corporate bonds because they were worried about this enormous and growing debt pile in corporate America, some of the largest portion of which sits with the oil and gas industry. 
Um, and, you know, during the most heated moments in March and April, companies were struggling to refinance their debt and keep their operations going. So the Fed jumps into action. They launch a trillion dollar bond buying program. Uh, and lo and behold, according to research from Influence Map, they are overweight fossil fuels. So not only are they indiscriminately propping up every company around the world, or sorry, around the United States, they're also doing it even more so for uh, fossil fuel companies that otherwise, you know, frankly, deserve no bailout, let alone are on their way to bankruptcy. So that's kind of been the picture. I think you're totally right. We, we have completely squandered the opportunity to use that first round or first wave of stimulus money to um, plot a different direction for the economy. Instead, if anything, it's helped entrench incumbents or prop them up. Uh, again, though, I think the issue is that their demise is inevitable. So we're really throwing good public money after bad. Um, and, you know, we're going to see that wave of bankruptcies. We're already seeing that wave of bankruptcies materialize regardless. So, you know, I think that's been the story thus far. I think the challenge we face politically is that, you know, the uh, Republican Party in particular, um, but the fossil fuel industry absolutely is not shy to fight publicly for money and subsidies and support and deregulation in these times of crisis. I mean, it's not... Um, uh, surprising to see that in the wish list of uh, or their bailout wish list from the National Mining Association, access to credit and access to finance was one of the most important things for the coal industry. Meanwhile, the clean energy industry has shed 600,000 plus jobs. And, you know, we hear barely a peep from Democrats and from, you know, the people who should be championing the clean energy industry and a green recovery. And I think that's because you know, in some ways, it's driven by um, a pure motivation to say this is a public health crisis. We need to take care of frontline workers first. But, you know, the messy reality is that trillions of dollars get spent, incumbents capture it, and the transition is stalled, which is really the, the um, situation we face today. And so I think what we now need looking forward, even though we've spent trillions of dollars already, we really need um, people to get out of that mindset that, you know, it's too early to talk about green stimulus. It's too early to advocate for clean energy jobs. I mean, these are winning political issues. These are 600,000 jobs that need to be fought for, and they're not being fought for, at least not aggressively and openly and publicly enough. And so I think this is the opportunity for us to not squander this time. Um, but I also think that, unfortunately, um, the crisis isn't going away anytime soon. And so, uh, you know, we will have repeated chances, hopefully, down the road to rectify this problem here in the United States, spend our money a bit more wisely and make sure we support our friends in the clean ener energy industry, because, you know, th there's a lot of jobs we've lost. And I've actually had my eyes opened to, you know, not just clean energy, but how sustainability really does uh, bake itself into so many things like the highway system in Houston, for instance, uh, you know, you may not consider that a clean energy project. In fact, it is not, but it definitely has implications for emissions, for access to future clean energy technologies like EVs and who can use them, access to public transit, for instance. So it's not just about wind and solar, but it's really about a more comprehensive view of you know, how people get around and how we make things and fix things that were already broken and are now exacerbated by the current crisis, the health and economic crisis. So again, a lot of elements to this, but it feels like it's getting a lot of airtime in, you know, on the internet and maybe not so much in the halls of Congress just yet. Unfortunately, yes, <laughs> I think that's right. I think meanwhile, I just saw the Trump administration is vowing to take a serious look at moves by major banks not to finance drilling in the Arctic in response to concerns raised by Senator Dan Sullivan and other Republicans. So it's interesting to see that, you know, a few days after Deutsche Bank makes, makes a commitment to pull financing out of Arctic, you know, uh, activities, the administration is also stepping up its pressure there. So it is a reminder that this conversation is very much not over. And you're going to have to do a lot more work, I suppose, Justin. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it, it just reminds me that I think the last thing that I wanted to make sure I shared, which I think is important in this time of bailouts and stimulus, um, that, you know, the uh, tomfoolery <laughs> of Republicans trying to push back on um, common sense uh, shifts from banks is that, you know, there is kind of a logical conclusion of the trends that we've seen in the financial sector over the past several years 
as I said, you know, we've seen a wave of voluntary exclusion policies. We've seen investors turning their back on the coal industry and increasingly the oil and gas industry. And I think what that does is it opens up the political space for regulation, which is, you know, the ultimate logical conclusion of uh, all of these trends. If the private sector is already saying we don't need to be touching this stuff, we don't need to be investing in this stuff, we don't need to be financing this stuff, you are clearly paving the way for uh, regulations and uh, action at the federal level. And so should there be a transition of power in November, the real opportunity for the next administration, the one that they really have to take advantage of, is uh, efforts to rein in the systemic risk that investing in coal, oil and gas creates. Because as we talked about with what the Federal Reserve has been doing, when they prop up these vulnerable companies, when we continue to allow money to flow to fossil fuels, what we're doing is generating risk within the financial system. And it's the kindling on which the next financial crisis will burn. Uh, And so if we do not act now, it's not just about losing jobs as companies go bankrupt. We're going to see the next financial crisis driven by climate risk, driven by rapidly reduced asset prices in the coal, oil and gas industry caused by a disorderly transition. Uh, And so the the tool the next administration has at its disposal is Dodd-Frank. That is an amazing piece of legislation that has already been passed, by the way, forget the filibuster, that the next administration has at its disposal to rein in the flow of money to coal, oil and gas. Uh, There's been some amazing work by people like Graham Steele at Stanford, Greg Galzinis at CAP, Center for American Progress, showing just what the next administration could do if it had some ambition, if it realized the mounting risks that lending and financing and investing in uh, the fossil fuel industry is going to pose. And so I think that's something I wanted to make sure I left you with because it it really hasn't been on the radar of the climate community, the environmental community. Um, You know, I think the new axiom we all need to live by is that finance policy is climate policy Um, And it's something we need to recognize and push the next administration on because it's not going to happen unless we have uh, a bunch of pressure. But the good news is that, you know, financial institutions themselves are starting to go in that direction. They're starting to limit their ability to invest in this stuff voluntarily. Um, It is an opportunity for the next administration and they got to seize it. Well, Justin, I'm so glad we finally had a chance to do this because I've wanted to have you on the podcast for a while. I've been following your work and your tweets and, you know, all that good stuff. And I'm really glad you took the time to break it all down here for us. So thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Julia. I'll continue to shout into the wind, shout into the void of Twitter and hope somebody's paying attention. But will you continue snowboarding and jumping off of roofs (laughs) on your snowboard? Do people know about this? (laughs) Yeah, now that's something I keep to myself. Nobody needs to know about that. I've got dad bod now, Julia. Nobody would (laughs) possibly imagine that I ever did anything interesting in a previous life. Okay, we won't won't bore them with the details now then. (laughs) Uh, Justin, thanks again. Thanks, Julia. Well, that was episode two in Political Climate's miniseries, We're Calling Ditched, Fossil Fuels, Money Flows, and the Greening of Finance. These episodes will air Mondays over the next several weeks, so be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you can catch all of these shows. Thanks so much for listening, and I hope you'll tune in next time.